Gosh. I'm a bifellow at Peterhouse in Law and I'm also a practising barrister at the tax bar in London. Julian, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today. We're looking at the post-Brexit landscape in the United Kingdom. It's been a very busy week indeed with various government announcements, but you were looking at what the taxation system would look like post-Brexit. Have you got concerns? And if so, what are they? Yes, I've, I've got concerns. To sum it up, it's that nobody's really thought about tax. There are all sorts of areas where really there's been quite a lot of thought and some organised work that's been done, agriculture, fishing, seasonal workers. Tax, almost none at all. Uh, tax is important for reasons that we, I think we'll talk about. I think there needs to be some thinking. And the taxation systems in the United Kingdom, we are four countries, that's been emphasised by Nicola Sturgeon for the SNP, who wants another referendum on whether they stay within the UK or not. But how does the taxation system play out across the four countries? For the main taxes that everyone will know about, income tax, corporation tax, capital gains tax, there aren't four countries, there are United Kingdom taxes. Even for the Scottish rate of income tax, which again, I think some may know about, where the Scottish government can raise the rate of income tax. That's not what's called a devolved tax. That's a United Kingdom tax. But the, the Scottish government has got power to adjust upwards rates. There are some devolved taxes, the equivalent of stamp duty, for example. It's called land, buildings and transaction tax in, in Scotland. That is a devolved tax. That's entirely within the jurisdiction of the Scots government. For the main taxes, no, there's, there aren't four jurisdictions, there's one. And if we then look out to across the 27 countries of the European Union, there will be 27 now, not 28, how does the UK taxation system weave into theirs? Apart from VAT, which is special because it's a function, a direct function of being a member of the EU, everyone thinks that VAT will stay, I think they're right, post-Brexit, but parking VAT for the moment... Tax systems don't really, in member states, weave into each other. Each member state legislates its own tax code, but critically and importantly, what each tax code of every member state, including the UK, has to do is comply with, be consistent with, the free movement rules, which now have become far more visible, uh, blinding the obvious reasons. And if they don't comply with these free movement rules, these tax rules that member states including the UK Enact, they have to be changed. And so is that a big task? Yes, and because it's a big task, it hasn't yet been done for any of the main what's called direct taxes, income tax, gains tax, corporation tax. Rather, what's been happening is that in a number of really very important cases in the European Court of Justice, where all sorts of member states, as I say, including the UK, have been told this or that tax rule does not comply with the free movement rules, they've been changed piecemeal. And that leads necessarily for all of us, in all what is still 28 member states, to an, a, an incoherent tax system. Because the European Court of Justice says this rule has to change, so they change it. But a lot of other rules, which haven't yet been litigated, they've, they've stayed the same. People have spoken about trade deals and regulation. They haven't talked about trade deals and taxation. But you seem to be saying it's a very complex area of negotiation between the UK and the EU on Brexiting. Yes, it is. And people should be thinking about tax. The free movement rules, where there should be this borderless Europe for all of the factors of production, workers, self-employed persons, 
capital. Tax rules which present obstacles to that have been the subject, as I've said now, more than once, of some seminal decisions of the European Court. So, a French or German company that pays more tax because it's French or German in the UK than its UK competitor because of the tax code of the UK. And there are sensible tax reasons for that. But because they interfere with free movement, those tax rules have been disapplied by the European Court of Justice. In other words, tax plays, this is obvious if you think about it, a critical part in free trade. And a critical part in where companies situate themselves. We've heard the concern about Google or some of the global technology companies not residing where their staff are for business reasons, so they pay less tax. There's a lot of play on taxation systems in terms of situation of global businesses. Yes, there is. And that's part of, actually, uh, as it happens, free movement. In the same way that a company might locate in a particular jurisdiction because of skilled employment, absolutely that company might also locate because a tax rate in a jurisdiction is lower than in a, in, in, in a different jurisdiction. It's as simple as that. So tax plays a fundamental part in trade dynamics. People have talked about the UK economy becoming a low-wage, low-tax economy. For instance, if we Brexited without a deal, if everything fell through in the next six months, do you see that as being likely? And how easy would it be for the government to just introduce a Henry VIII clause to say we're going to lower our taxation? Well, it wouldn't need to be a Henry VIII clause, and taxation, I think, is generally not done what's colloquially called a Henry VIII clause through secondary legislation. Tax rates are, are, are set year on year after the budget by a Finance Act, so I think we, we don't need to fuss about Henry VIII clauses. Uh, it's very easy, because it's for the Westminster Parliament to set what the tax rate is. Tax rate is actually going down dramatically this year, coming, it's going to go down by 1%, to an eventual objective rate George Osborne wanted of 17%. Now, it used to be 30 So that's a fantastically low rate compared to some of our European competitors. And that is with a view to not just relieving business of a cost in the UK, but attracting business from, from elsewhere. What's also orthodoxy in policy thinking is that low tax jurisdictions which seek to attract business by being low tax is a harmful and ultimately unattractive business operation. The OECD published a, a paper years ago in the late 80s to do with harmful tax competition because what they view this as being a, is a race to the bottom where taxes, which are needed to pay for all sorts of good and worthwhile things, are lowered further and further to attract business and therefore employment, but at the cost of governments raising money to pay for public services. And so general orthodox thinking is that what's called harmful tax competition is a bad thing. And tax planning, where... Companies locate in one jurisdiction but do the substance of their business in another jurisdiction perfectly lawfully, but often artificially by having employees in one company and their business infrastructure in another company and using agreements to shift money from one location to another through royalties or dividends. That's also thought to be, although perfectly legal, harmful because companies which are advised by sophisticated tax advisors often pay tax not just in the lowest tax jurisdiction, which for the reasons I've given is often thought to be a, a, a bad game to get into in the first place, but also just because of the way tax systems often fit together, end up paying a, a rate of tax which is lower than the headline rate of tax anywhere. Another area that you spoke about was state aid. We know the government has 
offered what might be called sweetness or sweetheart deals to, to Nissan to stay in Sunderland. There's a, quite a lot of talk about how these deals comply with regulations and if you offer it to one company, you should offer it to another. Does state aid concern you? Yes, um, state aid is exactly that. It's a sweetener paid to a particular company which isn't available to its competitors, so it distorts competition. The notion of state aid, so far as the EU law is concerned, an EU notion to stop exactly that. There are rules on this, but put short, it's exactly that, that sweeteners which distort competition are impermissible. If the UK, after Brexit, does not have a state aid notion as a matter of UK law, we have to wait and see, that's actually very profound, because some of the counterparties, EU member states that the UK wants to negotiate trade deals with, they will still be subject to EU state aid provisions. So the EU, for example, Italy, will not be able to negotiate a deal with the UK that says we'll give a tax holiday to the Brit for six months for investing in Italy, so long as you give us, an Italian company, the same tax holiday if we invest in the UK. That's state aid. You can't do it. And if we then look at the landscape in the UK post-Brexit, with or without a deal, how do you think the layers of the courts are going to work? You've got UK law, you've got the devolved administrations, and that might be slightly different. And then you've got European law. Do you think that we've just failed to look at the taxation systems in relation to Brexit. Well, we've certainly failed to look at that as a specific area to be dealing with as a highly visible, important area and a central area in all of Brexit. Oh, it's absolutely true, because there are many contexts of trade law where tax is critical. That's been my big message throughout the conversation. So in a free trade agreement, let's say it's with Canada or with another EU country, a French company is going to have quite a lot to say, or a Canadian company is going to have quite a lot to say. If, if the deal is, well, we won't impose customer duties, tariffs, that's one sort of tax. Oh, but when you're here on your UK branch, it will pay a rate of tax at, say, 25 or 30%, whereas your UK competitor is only paying 19%. They will say, well, actually, why is that free trade at all? VAT. Let's assume that we keep VAT as everybody thinks we will, and that's overwhelmingly likely, VAT, because it's an EU tax, is shot through with notions of state aid and so-called fiscal neutrality, that businesses which do the same sort of things should be subject to the same rate of VAT. Now, if you can imagine the public and private sector in competition with all sorts of things, mundane things, car parks, bus services, there, there have been, again, important cases worth many, many, many billions of pounds where local authorities want to take advantage of provisions that mean they don't have to charge VAT. And the European Court has held, well, they can't do that because that would give them a competitive advantage over their private competitor who does have to charge VAT. Now, these are big issues for the consumer, for governments, for trade agreements post-Brexit as to what the structure of the main taxes, direct taxes and VAT will look like. There are going to be different layers of law and challenges post-Brexit to the taxation laws and whatever the UK government decides to do or decides not to do? Oh, certainly. One issue that's been raised a number of areas is this two-year window where the UK is subject to EU law for two years before the final curtain falls on, on, on our membership. Now, and this is as true of tax as it is in many areas, it's often wholly at large as to whether a European Court judgment, for example, that's made and issued post that two-year date merely clarifies what the law was previously or makes new law. 
And that is particularly true of tax. There are all sorts of concepts and principles at play which have been developed and refined over a number of years by the European Court. Principles of European notions of abuse of right, notions of what, what is a freedom of establishment, notions of when is it that a, a member state is justified in breaching the free movement rules by setting tax rates in order to prov- meet other treaty objectives. Now, the cases post that two-year date will be subject to all sorts of challenges as to whether, as I say, what they're doing is making new post-two-year date law or merely refining what the law was previously. And that has serious implications for business because we all know that business likes to know the climate in which it's operating, whatever that climate may be. So just finally, do you think it's going to have a knock-on impact on business because business won't know the rules of engagement? Yes, it's, it's, it's unsatisfactory that business doesn't have certainty because profound legal questions and matters of legal reasoning and philosophy about what is or, or isn't a judgment which merely declares existing law and defines and makes it visible as opposed to making new law. It's great for academics like me. In my role as an academic, it's not at all good for a client who's doing real business in the real world who actually wants to know what the rules are. It also stores up trouble this prospect for governments because it lays open opportunistic challenges by business who want to take advantage of a post-two-year date decision, which might be advantageous, to raise an action in the UK courts to say, well, you said we were subject to EU law as it was previous to this date. This post-two-year date decision tells us what that pre-two-year law actually is. So see you in court. This is hopeless for the government as well as for business. Sounds like we could become a tin pot economy. Well, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. But what I do say is that tax is necessarily a cost to business and tax is also used as an incentive to attack business. So when actually what is front and centre of Brexit considerations and negotiations is trade and free trade, tax ought to be more visible than it is. Julian Gosch, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today, looking at the post-Brexit economic and legal challenges in the United Kingdom. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. 